My Pet Chicken's mission is to make life easy and fun for urban and backyard chicken owners with our line of products, free information, tools, and resources. And boy, do they deliver. You can mix and match a wide variety of chicken breeds in your order. If you're not sure which chickens are right for you, there's a handy pick a chicken breed selector tool. They also sell goslings and ducklings if you want to add some waddling additions to your farm. There's a wealth of information on the website to support you as a chicken keeper too. Go to mypetchicken.com slash drinkandfarm to put in your chick, duckling, or gosling order. That link lets them know that we sent you, and it's a great way to support our podcast and fulfill all of your poultry addiction needs. Welcome to We Drink and We Farm Things. This is the farm comedy podcast that is an adult happy hour for the farming community. We drink adult beverages, talk about the ups and downs of farming things, and give zero clucks about not having the perfect farm life. We keep it real with you and share the mistakes we've made and what we've learned so you can feel less alone in this farm thing. We drink things, we farm things, we drink and farm things. Oh, hey there, Sam. Oh, hey there, Bev. What you drinking today? I opened a Prairie Artisan Ales Millennial Mansion. Ooh. Ah. What is it? <laughs> it's an Imperial <laughs> Sour Ale with orange peel, lemon peel, lime, blueberry, cherry, and marshmallow flavor. Ooh, the marshmallow kind of throws me off. Yeah, it sounds like a very strange ecosystem of beer flavors, <laughs> if you ask me. Yes. <laughs> and it smells funny, too. Well, how does it taste, though? Um, So it's actually pretty good. I guess it kind of tastes like that, you know, that weird dessert that's like always on buffet tables that's like that fluffy stuff with all of the fruit like ambrosia i guess is that what it's called i have no idea i'm not from the midwest i I think so (laughs) listeners listeners can correct us if we're wrong (laughs) yeah if so if that dessert was a beer this is what i think it would taste like oh interesting so what did you open over there so I opened a Bell's No Yeah. Ooh. Um, that's literally what it's called. No Yeah. And it says, just a really nice beer. And it is an easy drinking golden ale. And the can art's kind of funny because it says, like, there's this big, like, it says No Yeah. But then there's also, like, oh, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, watch out for deer. Like, all these really Midwest things. Um <laughs> But my brother and sister-in-law were over a bit ago, and uh, they they went out and got this beer and brought it. So <laughs> it's pretty good. It is a very easy golden ale, and it's perfect because, like, on this day that we record, it is 50 degrees outside in Michigan. Um, so I, I, it feels appropriate to not drink something super heavy today. I like it. Yeah. Our drink peep this episode is our friend Ashley Kiernan, and she is at Ashley Kiernan over on the Instagram. So cheers, lady. Cheers. So today we're going to talk about America's favorite pastime. Baseball? Not ba- 
not okay. baseball. I didn't no. think so. I guess I should say <laughs> favorite pandemic pastime that is appropriate to talk about. <laughs> yes. The one that has to do with like farming things, sort of. Carbs. <laughs> Carbs. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about the science of sourdough. Yes, and we're going to start by busting a common sourdough myth. Then we're going to discuss what's really inside those fun starter jars that you've got sitting on your stove right now. And we're going to tell you how it works. And then we're going to share our experience with baking all of the fluffy goodness that is sourdough. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. So let's start with busting that sourdough myth. Let's do it. So in some new work that was published in the Journal of eLife, researchers were taking sourdough science to a new level by collecting and genetically sequencing 500 sourdough starters sent in by bakers on four different continents because they wanted to draw a map of their microbial diversity. Ooh. So a sourdough starter culture contains a microbial community that's made up of both yeasts and bacteria. And um, as the starter is fed and it grows, those microbes ferment the carbohydrates in the flour, and that produces the carbon dioxide gas that makes the bread dough rise. And over the years, a mythology has grown up around sourdough that certain places have special types of wild yeast that are particularly suited for bread making. But researchers have found that on a global level, it was hard to tell the difference between the microbes in, like, say, the bread starter from Paris and those found in San Francisco. And those are two places that, like, claim their sourdough starters are, like, superior <laughs> because of the special things that are, like, in them. <laughs> but it turns out you can't really tell the difference between them. Or at least researchers <laughs> couldn't tell the difference between them in this case. Um so, so far, they think that the difference in sourdough starter culture seems to be largely based on the conditions like within the bakery or the kitchen where the sourdough starter is maintained um, and um, like how it's handled and whatnot. So like some people say like it's the bacteria on your hands or whatnot. So I thought that was a really fun way to start this episode. <laughs> I feel like... I I don't know if you've seen the show Adam Ruins Everything. Oh, yes. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. I feel like Bev just ruined sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because I, I scoured Etsy for a really fun sourdough starter um, that was dry and you had to like activate it. And mine is from is like 400 years old. And it's from the Black Death era, era, and it's from Germany. Oh. Um, so, but it was also like only five dollars or something like that. Okay, good. So it's not like I broke the bank. <laughs> I thought it was just kind of funny and interesting, and like they give you a ton of resources on how to use discard and and how to bake your sourdough and all that stuff. So, like that in itself was worth paying them five dollars. But yeah, so. <laughs> It's good to know that it probably tastes the same as the ones they also sell from San Francisco in their shop. <laughs> probably. It sounds like your $5 was well spent because you got a lot yeah. of value out of it. But I'm so sorry. This episode is going to ruin that whole thing ah! about it being Black Death Sourdough. <laughs> I've, you know what? It's the thought that counts. 
and oh. I think it makes it special. And I thought it was also funny that you know that was a terrible time in history, and now we're in a pandemic right now. So oh, that's true. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, full circle. The only thing that matters <laughs> is that it makes delicious bread, right? Yes, that is true. So. What is exactly in the jar of bubbly, smelly goodness that sits on your counter? And how does it work? So most home sourdough bakers know that their starter contains a vibrant herd of microbes, which leaven and flavor their bread. But where conventional breads rely on a single species of baker's yeast, which if we're comparing sourdough microbes to herds, it has the species diversity of, say, a cattle ranch. But sourdough is more like the Serengeti, a diverse ecosystem of interacting yeast and bacteria. The nature of that ecosystem enhances the flavor of the bread. And scientists are beginning to discover that the microbes in the sourdough depend not just on the native microbial flora of the baker's house and hands, but also on other flavors like the choice of flour, the temperature of the kitchen, and when and how often the starter is fed. So there's a really cool quote in one of the articles that we pulled, and it says, When we study sourdough science, we learn that we know remarkably little for a technology that's, what, 12,000 years old? And that's from Anne Madden, a microbiologist at North Carolina University. But, you know, one of the things that she says is that even that limited knowledge is enough to cast light on a diverse, tumultuous, microbial world. And that shining a light on that can provide a few hints to home bakers that are hoping to up their sourdough game. And that just reminded me that we forgot to tell you where we pulled our sources from for this episode. So we're just going to tell you right now so that we don't get too far. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So huge thank you to Scientific American that wrote a really cool article titled The Science of Sourdough and How Microbes Enabled a Pandemic Pastime. And then also Science Friday. They did a cool segment um, all about sourdough microbiomes. So there will be links to both of those in the show notes. And I highly recommend you go check them out because they were like, there was some really cool info. Okay, so the basics of starting a sourdough starter are just flour and water, and it pretty much looks like a paper mache paste, but almost immediately the yeast and bacteria from the environment and the flour itself start feeding on the sugars in the flour, which um, pretty much means that almost any microbe can grow on this rich new energy source because like flour is full of carbohydrates, which equals energy. And that includes like the really yucky bacteria, like spoilage bacteria, which is why brand new sourdough starters kind of can go through a black putrid smelling phase. But like if you started a sourdough starter from a um, from like a dehydrated starter, you won't go through that weird um, like putrid yucky phase because you got to start with all of the good microbiomes um, that were already present in like a really well formed um, sourdough. And in fact, Sam, I forgot to tell you, that's how I started my sourdough starter too. I did not start it with just flour and water on the counter because I kept those kept failing for me. <laughs> So I bought one from a friend off of Etsy. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. So we're both, we both took the, a shortcut, but there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, absolutely. 
But when you start a new uh, starter from just flour and water, eventually the conditions begin to change. And one of those early, they call them colonists. They'd be like microbiome colonists, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) They start to acidify the starter. Um, By day three, these are so-called lactic acid bacteria. So they're named for one of the main acids that they produce, which is also found in yogurt, cheese, and other fermented milk products. And they make the starter so acidic that a lot of the early things that are living on your sourdough starter actually can't survive anymore. So basically only the lactic acid bacteria and a few other acid tolerant yeasts are left, which kind of makes them just a little less diverse than they were when they started off. But that's probably better for your health, I suppose, if some of them were yucky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this lactic acid together with a vinegary smelling Acetic acid gives sourdough its characteristic tang. And microbiologist Guylaine Lacays of the Belgian Baker's Supply and consulting company Purados says that it could also improve the nutritional quality of the bread because the increased acidity activates the enzyme phytase, which makes minerals like calcium and phosphate more available. So that's one of the um, quote unquote health benefits that you can get from eating sourdough bread. And um, this Belgian baker supply company microbiologist is aware of four unpublished studies on the topic. So we can't like quote them as being backed by science yet, but they are working on publishing those studies and those have been the results so far. So it's nice to know that your sourdough habit could sort of be a good health habit too, maybe, probably. Yeah, I think um, that is, that's really neat because I think a lot of us automatically think like if I make it from home or from scratch or something like that it's automatically more healthy and that might be true for most things but like this is literally like if you have a sourdough starter and you're eating sourdough there are actually some benefits to that kind of bread and kudos to you if you make your own yeah which is kind of neat and you know one of the things that's really hard is like giving diet and health advice can be really difficult because everybody's needs are different. Right. <laughs> so yeah. like I can say sourdough bread is like really healthy for you because I like the way it makes my gut feel, but like somebody else, it could just like totally ruin their day digestively. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. So by days 10 to 14, the starter has settled into a stable state where yeasts and lactic acid bacteria grow vigorously. The yeast producing enough carbon dioxide to loaf in a loaf of bread. And that's when the starter is ready to use. And that's really when the party starts. Yay! But the fact that new starters settle down within a couple of weeks doesn't mean that they all end up with the same set of microbes. In one recent study, Madden and her colleagues shipped bags of the same flour to 18 professional bakers around the world, who then used the flour to create starters in their own kitchens using identical techniques. About a month later, the bakers and their starters convened in Belgium, where researchers used DNA sequencing to identify the microbes in each starter. Even though all of the bakers started with the same flour, their starters were all different. 
Most contained various strains of common baker's yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, <laughs> Saccharomyces cerevisiae. <laughs> uh, that's what I said. Yes. Uh, <laughs> kind of, but more drunk sounding. Anyways. Um, along with a host of other yeasts in very proportions, they found. The starters also contain a wide range of lactic acid bacteria, mostly in the genus Lactobacillus. Lactobax. Close enough. Lactobacillus. <laughs> Lactobacillus, which is the same um, that is in beer. That's the same yeast that's oh. used in beer. Yeah, for those, nice. um, what is it? Like, I'm thinking like the milk stouts. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, um, yeah, most of them contained that beer bacteria, I'll call it, since I don't want to try to say the word again. Um, <laughs> though, once again, the details varied widely from one starter to the next. Most microbes appeared to come to have come from the flower, a different draw each time, though a few also originated with the baker's hands or kitchen. Neato! That is super neat. <laughs> yeah. And other research groups in Europe have seen similar diversity. Um, Marco Gabetti, a microbiologist at the Free University of Bozen, Bolzano, and Italy, in Italy, said, my conclusion is that every sourdough is different. Huh. <laughs> but, he, <Ta> -da. <laughs> but he suspects a constant flux of species may be the norm for any given sourdough over time, though there isn't really a whole lot of evidence to back that thought up yet. Which, this is the thing that casts some doubt on treasured heirloom sourdoughs, um, and some of those have actually been passed down for generation to generation. And um, what they're saying is mm -hmm. that while most owners may like to think that they're baking with the same microbes that their ancestors used, um, Gobetti, the microbiologist, is skeptical. Boo! <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> fun ruiner way to be a fun ru ruiner go better <laughs> dick <laughs> he's not no i'm just kidding he's guys. not <laughs> but even if every sourdough is different they might all fall into several distinct groups based on the microbes that are present but a question still remains that even if every sourdough is different, could we possibly put them into several distinct groups based on the microbes that are present, um, kind of like we do with terrestrial plant communities like grasslands and forests, even though there's constantly a changing mix of species? And the answer to that question might be coming soon. That's right. Elizabeth Landist, a microbiologist at Tufts University in Boston, and her colleagues identified the microbes in 560 starters submitted by bakers around the world, then looked for recurrent groupings of microbes. Some species do appear to co-occur frequently, they found, perhaps because they specialize in feeding on distinct sugars. The yeast, Kazakhstania? I feel like I just said a country name. You did, kind of. Yeah, it is. It's, it's Kazakhstania humilis. Okay. 
we'll go with that. <laughs> um, is That's an example. Um, and it can't use the sugar maltose, which is therefore available for the lactic acid bacteria. Um, and just a note that the paper describing these results is still under review, so Landis isn't sharing details just yet. So each microbial community seems to produce its own unique flavor profile. Some produce more lactic acid, which gives it a yogurty flavor, and others yield a sharper, more vinegary note from lots of acetic acid. And because each species of microbe has slightly different metabolic pathways, each is likely to add other flavorful metabolic byproducts to the mix. So that's a big reason why sourdough tends to have a subtler, more complex flavor than ordinary bread. And not all sourdough microbial communities are so diverse. In commercial bakers' sourdoughs, which are fed daily or even more often, the microbes always have plenty of food. That creates a race with the fastest reproducing microbes dominating over time. In the long run, the winners are the yeast, Kazakhstania, and the lactic acid bacterium, Lactobacillus sanfranciscensis. <laughs> there we go. I said that super confidently, so you guys get it. Sounds like the Harry Potter spells. <laughs> it is kind of. It's Latin. Yeah. <laughs> That's not necessarily good news for the resulting bread. L. sanfranciscensis grows fastest because it has one of the smallest genomes among lactic acid bacteria which means it has fewer metabolic pathways and thus fewer flavor-producing byproducts than other bacteria. Score one for home sourdoughs, which are more likely to be diverse. Yes. So if you have ever bought sourdough bread, like, you know, from like a big commercial baker and then made your own and you're like, why does mine just like have more flavor? That would explain it. It's because theirs is used more often. So it doesn't have time for those other things to like come in and have time to feed and grow. Check out the Drink and Farm merch shop. We keep the shop up to date with new and fresh items. And while you're there, check out the shirt of the month. Go to drinkandfarm.com slash shop and maybe snag a few things you've been eyeing for a while. Shopping with us is an excellent way to support the podcast and get something for yourself at the same time. So fun fact, how you care for your starter affects the flavor as well. Huzzah. This is super interesting because the starter that I have recommends that you feed it every single day. Oh, and um, I don't know if that's right or wrong or not, but I some days I forget. It just sits on my counter. Um, but Matt has made comments before about like the amount of time that I let it eat. Like when I do feed it, the amount of time I let it eat and that timing, he can tell a difference in the bread because it's more flavorful if I let it eat a little longer than say if I let it eat for like three hours and then use it. But if I do longer than that. He, he notices a difference. That's really so. cool. Yeah, I don't know if it's just in his head or not. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because like one of the examples that the article gave is like those made with less water tend to be more dense. So they trap more oxygen in the dough. 
um, which makes the lactic acid bacteria produce sharper tasting acetic acid. But in like starters that are runnier, which have more water in them, that same bacteria produce softer tasting lactic acid. So it'll have a more mild flavor. And temperature matters too. Lactic acid bacteria do best in a relatively warm conditions, for example. So fermenting in a warm kitchen makes for a sourer dough, while cooler conditions lead to more of like a fruity flavor produced by the yeast. Lactic acid bacteria, despite what you'd think, aren't fond of highly acid environments. Home bakers who leave an acidic starter in a cold fridge for weeks between baking can find they end up with a blander bread that lacks the distinctive tang contributed by the bacteria. If you're going to leave your starter in the fridge for longer than a week, make sure to refrigerate it immediately after adding fresh flour when it's least acidic. That will help the lactic acid bacteria survive the prolonged cold to acidify the rising dough. So all of that was actually super helpful to me because so I don't feed mine every day. I usually feed mine like every three or four days. And if it goes to seven, I'll actually just pop it in the fridge Um, because obviously like I don't want it to start growing some like weird things on it when the good stuff dies (laughs) because I'm starving it to death basically. (laughs) So I was glad to learn about this because my bread more recently has been blander and I didn't realize it was because I was waking up a cold sourdough starter and then I was just baking with it that day (laughs) so I need to put it back in the fridge yeah I think unless somebody tells you that stuff or you read it like you just wouldn't know the the people that I got my my um starter from say like you can refrigerate it for like up to seven days without feeding it and if you want to use it you have to like pull it out of the fridge feed it And then let it sit for like a day. Oh. (laughs) Because, yeah, it's coming out of hibernation, kind of. So I've gone back and forth between it being in my fridge and being on my counter. And I think I just like it on my counter better. Because I like looking at it. It feels like I'm doing something important for myself. (laughs) Right. And you are doing something important for yourself because you're enjoying it, right? Making delicious bread to deal with my stress at work. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) so one of the other things I do too is I um, when I'm going to be baking with my sourdough starter that day I pop it in the oven with just the oven light on but it's a cold oven that's off but when I turn the light Ah. on inside my oven it warms it to like around 80 degrees (gasps) so interesting yeah it gets bubblier faster and it like rises better Interesting. I have read too, though, that the only way to really kill your starter is to make it too hot. Oh, oh, yeah, because that'll kill all the bacteria in it. They die. Yeah. So, yeah. So don't do that, people. <laughs> but I like your, I like your oven idea. I might try that. Just make sure you stick a sticky note to the oven that says sourdough inside, so that like you know, like some <laughs> so well-intending person. It. Comes to like preheat the oven for cookies or something, and then they like bake your whole sourdough starter. It'd be sad. <laughs> oh, that'd be so sad. So, one of the biggest ways that bakers can actually influence the flavor of their sourdough bread is through their choice, through their choice of flours for the starter. Mm. So, it turns out that different flours have so far led to different sets of microbes and hence different flavors. But the studies that have concluded this have yet to be published. So this may change. 
And this is really interesting right here. Um, so far, um, a lot of the sourdough researchers have taken only baby steps towards designer sourdoughs. Their science have not yet caught up to the folk wisdom. And one of the researchers says, people would like to know step-by-step, step, how do I make the end product I desire? And she says that we can't begin to offer anything that's better than common baking knowledge or the breakfast or the best practices that you learn from blogs or talking with friends. So basically, mm. sourdough knowledge is like, I mean, I guess you could call it like generational knowledge or community knowledge. Like mm. it's kind of a, you learn by doing and experimenting and see what works in your kitchen mm -hmm. and what doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I've kind of found too. Like I found a recipe that I really like. But I also have the book um, Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast uh, by Ken Forkish. And I just found it on Amazon and like the book cover looked pretty and it has like a loaf of bread on there that I would want to eat. So that's why I bought, <laughs> I bought the book. <laughs> um, but it's a really cool book. And today I'm making uh, or I started making a starter that had uh, I had to take he said to dump everything except for a hundred grams of my starter. And I had trust issues with that. So I just removed a hundred grams of starter into a separate bowl. But then we fed it with like, uh, 400 grams of white flour and then a hundred grams of whole, like a whole wheat flour. And then very specific temperature for the water. So this is getting a little more complex than the other, um, bread recipe that I've messed with. So, but in this one also has bacon in it too. Ooh. Uh, so that starter as we record is currently doing its thing on my counter for about 10 hours. And then I actually get to make the dough and then that sits for like another 12 in my fridge. And then we get to bake the bread. <laughs> so it's like a process, but man, sourdough starter is my jam these days that's so awesome i love that you've like taken your sourdough bread to like an art form yeah <laughs> yeah because like i'm still doing mine um very basically <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that that's what's so awesome about the sourdough starter is like you can do so many different things with it and like the discard like i've made muffins and cookies and pancakes, like, it's just so versatile. Oh, yeah, it totally is. Um, so in the show notes to this episode, we'll link to the book that Sam is using um, to do her sourdough bread. And then I'll also link to my sourdough starter recipe because I've actually just been using King Arthur Flowers um, beginner sourdough recipe. So I'm still doing my sourdough with um, sourdough starter and a little bit of commercial yeast also because um, one of the things that happens to me a lot and I'm trying to figure out a system to make sure that this doesn't happen is I'll start doing like an overnight or a multi-day sourdough, but I'll forget about it. And then it's like a total failure. Oh. <laughs> so that's why I do the one with the commercial yeast because I can start it and finish it all in the same day or even like the same afternoon. Ah. So then the family still gets to eat good bread that has like that nice tangy sourdough flavor. But like I didn't ruin, you know, like five pounds of flour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, I have to set reminders on my phone to remind me to go back to the activity because, yeah, a lot of the recipes that I'm looking at are like, a, it's like a two-day event. And it's not like there's a lot of active work. There's just a lot of waiting. Um, and sometimes in that waiting, we can forget. And and one time I went to make sourdough bread and forgot to actually put the starter in there and didn't realize it until it was in the oven. Oh my gosh. I was like, <laughs> why does that look so weird? Well, because the bubbly science stuff wasn't in it and it was literally flour, water, and salt. <laughs> what did it make? <laughs> like a thick sludge thing. <laughs> did you like, eat it? It was not good. Well, we cut it, Matt and I did, and like we both tried it. And it was just like I just threw it straight into the trash and then went and started like the dough all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> There's nothing like learning by doing though, right? <laughs> yeah. And I had already made like two really good loaves. So it was super disappointing because I was like, I feel like I'm in a rhythm now. Like I'm needing like a champion. I know what I'm doing. But like even when I was like needing it, I was like, why does this feel different? And it just didn't it, like went right over my head. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you know, baking is like a science and you have to follow the steps ex- exactly. <laughs> Which is probably why I tend to go for the shorter things. I don't do well with really long instructions. Like my brain starts to like wander off and then I'm like, wait, what was I working on? Oh, yeah. Sourdough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, all right. Well, that was fun. I'm glad we kind of learned a little bit more and that when my sourdough starter smells like alcohol, that that's actually okay. Yeah. Because sometimes it like puts me off a little bit. But I also like kind of like it. (laughs) So it's very confusing. (laughs) All right. So now it's time for We Can't Even Corner. So Bev, what can't you even about this week? So I can't even that um, a researcher did a study on how goats make decisions. (laughs) What? And it was really, really fascinating. So... There will be a link to this episode in the show notes. It's from um, NPR's Goats and Soda um, section, which is kind of a neat section. They, like, dive into all sorts of cool topics. But um, apparently there was, like, this really old study. um, Well, I guess it was 1996. Not really old, but it feels really old right now. Yeah. (laughs) About buffalo. And in the study, they concluded that buffaloes made decisions by like democratic voting so basically like if the majority of the herd were facing a certain direction that's the way that the herd ended up going and so because of those results they claim that that's just how animals make decisions like by body language voting essentially peer pressure yeah kind of like peer (laughs) pressure yeah um but this researcher did a similar study and used goats this time because he said that they didn't have the budget for buffalo And fair. What they found out is that um, goats actually just decide what to do based on what the goat next to them did. So, like, it didn't matter if they were high in the pecking order in the goat herd. Um, The first goat to act was the one that everybody followed. And it kind of reminded me of like a FOMO. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, they had no idea if that goat was actually onto something, but they were afraid that they might be and they'd miss out on it. So they went ahead and just followed him. Uh, and so they're, they kind of have made the leap to say that that is like how humans can kind of end up making our decisions that um, it's not necessarily based on anything like substantial or concrete. But if like the majority of the people around us are doing it, like we'll just kind of follow because it's like herd instincts kind of. I personally think that's kind of a stretch, oh. but <laughs> that's kind of terrifying if that's true. Right. Honestly. <laughs> I thought so too. Mob mentality. Like goats and humans have mob mentality. I think that's what I'm drawing the conclusion from that study from. Kind of, yeah. So I don't really like that end part, but I thought that was hilarious about the goats. It's interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, because like it's funny because I'll the goats are outside more right now because it's so nice and it I'll watch them from the window and it's like one of them will just take off running for like no apparent reason. Like it doesn't look like anything spooked them. And then the rest of the, like the, the remaining like 14 follow. <laughs> it's just hilarious. FOMO. I'm telling you FOMO. FOMO. <laughs> so what's your can't even this week? So mine is from an ABC seven.com um, article. That's what it's called. Um, And the title is Australian Sheep Loses 78-Pound Fleece After Years in the Wild. (gasps) What? Yeah. And you guys have to click this link and go look at at least the the still shot in the video. Um, An Australian animal shelter sheared off a 78-pound fleece from a rescue sheep that had been roaming in the wild for several years. Um, his name is Barack, like Barack, <laughs> but Ba. I'm not joking. That's cute. It's in the article, guys. Um, so yeah, uh, they shaved off his fleece because he was like having a hard time getting around with it, and it looks ridiculous. And there's like a before and after video and or and or picture that you guys can go see. Um, but it's super lucky that they found this the sheep so they could help him and i'm sure he's so much more comfortable now that he doesn't have 78 pounds extra on him it does look quite ridiculous so you guys will have to go check that out he did i just could not with how he looked he looks like a cloud (laughs) like a very uncomfortable cloud yeah very uncomfortable (laughs) cloud is a great way to describe that (laughs) yeah So make sure you guys send us your can't evens in the Facebook group. You can send them also through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, or email them to us at drinkandfarm at gmail.com. We have a mini-sode coming up where we will read those for your enjoyment. Yes, and be sure and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts because we read one review a week on the show. Um, And... When we read your review, you go into a drawing to win an exclusive coffee mug that is not and will never be in the shop. And Sam, would you like to read our review this week? We have a new one. Yes. Yes. And it is from, uh, well, Apple says it's from KD386. But the title is Entertaining and Educational. And uh, this listener writes, this was my first listen, but after my episode... I'll certainly be going through the older shows. As someone with a hobby farm that hopes to settle out here full time, this makes farming approachable. This had the perfect combination of being both entertaining and educational, a balance which many podcasts fail to achieve. 
Many thanks and looking to forward to the next episode. Thanks so much for leaving us that review. Yes, so nice. Ugh, warms my heart. Mine too. So make sure you hit the subscribe button if you haven't done that already and download the episode when you listen. This helps more people like you find us. And if you share this episode over on Instagram and tag us in your stories, we're at Drink and Farm. We'll send you a promo code just for that week that will give you a discount off in our merch shop. And make sure you take a look at the show notes to find links to the articles we discussed. There's also a link to a survey so you can tell us how we're doing anonymously. Um, And there's also links for our social media and our merch shop. So that's it, guys. Thanks for joining us on this uh, sourdough journey. Yeah. Let us know in our Facebook group if you, too, are on a sourdough journey. Um, I kind of came to it late in the pandemic. Um, I know a lot of people kind of went through that craze early in there. So I'm curious where you guys are at with it. Or maybe you just don't have any interest and that's okay, too. (laughs) That's totally okay. It's a big commitment. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. All right. So until next time. Drink. Farm. And give zero clucks. Bye, guys. Bye. We drink things. We farm things. We drink and